Hi everyone, welcome back to the 80th episode of Jew I Don't Know, number 80. Wow. Today we are discussing two connected things. Who does Israel say is a Jew, and where are we going to put them all? We're also continuing the story of the Mizrahi Jewish refugees from last week, those who come from the Middle East and North Africa. Now back in the second episode of this season, I asked you to hold a bunch of ideas in the back of your mind. The symbolism of Jewish immigration, what it says about the nature of the state of Israel, and the practical implications of such a huge influx of refugees from disparate parts of the world pouring into this tiny country. Remember that Israel's very first act as a nation was to abolish any restrictions on Jewish immigration. Now you could make the argument, and it's not an unreasonable one, that the Zionist dream was fulfilled on May 14, 1948 with the creation of Israel. In the 1890s, Theodore Herzl established the Zionist movement to see a Jewish nation-state rise in the land of Israel for the rescue and renewal of the Jewish people, and now here it was. But I want to argue that another date fulfilled the goals of Zionism, and that date is July 5th, 1950. On that day, the Knesset, Israel's parliament, passed what became known as the Law of Return, the Law of Return legally codified the very first act of Israel. It says, every Jew has the right to come to this country as an immigrant. If you carefully listened to season two here, and I know you did, you know that that was the ultimate goal of Zionism, immigration, of even greater importance than creating a nation state. Now the Law of Return doesn't just answer a question, it creates them. How do you define who is a Jew? And if every Jew has a right to immigrate, where are you going to put them all? And what does that mean for Israel's non-Jews, the Arabs who have equal rights as full citizens of the Jewish state? And what about what some of my birthright participants say, which is that it's discriminatory and racist, an act of Jewish supremacy? That's all part of today's episode. I'm Jason Harris, and this is Jew I Don't Know. <laughs> I would say to young people that we can do everyone our share to redeem the world. It stands to reason that if you want to allow immigration to your country for a certain type of person, you have to identify in law precisely who that person is. If you want to let in people with green t-shirts, then your immigration law needs to specify what counts as a green t-shirt, which makes a lot of sense. But remember that in Israel, you only solve one problem by creating new ones. In this case, for the law allowing every Jew the right to immigrate, Israel chose not to define who is a Jew. Which seems kind of bizarre, right? And the reason is that none of the Jews in the Knesset could quite agree on exactly who gets to be Jewish. There is the standard definition that has existed for millennia. Judaism, under religious law, is a matrilineal bloodline. If your mother is Jewish you are too. If she's not, you're not, regardless of whether your father is. However, you can undergo a conversion, in which case you are considered fully Jewish, and if you're a woman and have children after your conversion, then your kids will be too. So, your mother is Jewish, or you converted. Those are the two ways you're a Jew. Now, this system worked for centuries, when Jewish society was mostly insular by choice or by force, but in the last hundred years, it has steadily eroded as an effective means of definition. Different Jewish denominations, especially in the United States, 
have taken different perspectives on the question of matrilineal descent. The Orthodox and Conservative movements, the two most observant denominations, have generally held to it. The Reform and Reconstructionist movements have generally accepted both matrilineal and patrilineal descent. But there's also a definition of Jewish that comes from an unlikely place. Nazis. I hate these guys. Right. The Nazis. The Nazis declared that anyone with even one Jewish grandparent was considered Jewish, and therefore targeted for murder. If the reason for Israel's existence is to rescue Jews who are in danger, then it stands to reason that anyone targeted for being Jewish ought to have the right to immigrate to Israel, regardless of what strict Jewish law says about their religious identity. But the Knesset couldn't agree on how to reconcile these definitions, so they chose to just leave it. It will solve itself, they said, which is what I said the last time my check engine light came on, and guess what? It didn't. The Knesset figured that the Israeli government would more or less follow the religious definition that one's mother has to be Jewish for you to be Jewish. So, wide open law, no definitions, open to interpretation, and everyone has a different view on what it means. It's a trial lawyer's goldmine. And of course, that's what happened. Long story and long legal cases later, in 1970, the law of return was amended to broaden the definition of who is a Jew for the purposes of immigration, such as those with one Jewish grandparent or a Jewish father or those who are married to a Jew and on. Before we get lost in the weeds here, and believe me, I could absolutely get us lost in the weeds here, my point is this. The law of return was a fulfillment of Zionism. Zionism set out to establish a Jewish homeland in Palestine so that the Jewish people would have somewhere safe to go where they could flourish individually and collectively. For that to work, Jews had to be allowed to settle in that homeland without restriction. So the Law of Return was a political document for the nation-state that fulfilled the aims of the Zionist movement, which was itself a social and political movement. It was a legislative act. It wasn't intended as a theological ruling on Jewish law, and it wasn't intended as a value statement on the worth of Jewish people versus everyone else. And I mention this because a lot of my birthright participants criticized the law as a statement of Jewish supremacy. They had a hard time understanding how a law that singled out Jews as an ethnicity for special treatment wasn't racist or discriminatory against everyone else. And that's not an unreasonable critique. Us Americans are trained to recognize inequality and discrimination. And it was discriminatory. If you're not Jewish, you don't get the special immigration treatment. But there's another way to look at the law of return. The point wasn't to define who is a Jew to the exclusion of everyone else. The point was to affirm that Jews have the right to immigrate to Israel. David Ben-Gurion said that the law of return lays down not that the state accords the right of settlement to Jews abroad, but that this right is inherent in every Jew by virtue of his being a Jew, if it but be his will to take part in settling the land. The right of settlement, he went on, preceded the state of Israel. It is that which built the state. 
In other words, the law of return is affirming the goals of Zionism. It's not about prohibiting non-Jews, but about ensuring that Israel is automatically open for all Jews who want to come. The law of return creates a tension, then, between an expansive definition of who is a Jew for the purposes of who the state of Israel allows to immigrate, and the religious definition of who is a Jew, which is much narrower. You can simultaneously be enough of a Jew under civil law to immigrate to Israel, while also not being enough of a Jew under religious law to be considered fully Jewish. Hold on to that one. I'll delve more deeply into this in a later episode that's coming up soon. But here's the big takeaway. The law of return, which was passed in 1950, allowed for the right of all Jews to immigrate to Israel, thus fulfilling the Zionist dream. In immigrate, the Jews did. Hundreds of thousands of Holocaust survivors had already poured into the country. And now, from last week's episode, hundreds of thousands of Middle Eastern Jews, known as the Mizrahi, were also coming. Which presented, as ever, a new challenge. Where are we going to put everyone? Israel brought in hundreds of thousands of Mizrahi Jews as they were pushed out of their homes throughout the Middle East. But that is not to say that once the Mizrahi got to Israel, the integration was smooth. In fact, it was mostly the opposite. Israel was a tiny country and poor, and in a constant state of conflict with its neighbors. It barely had enough economic productivity to keep the status quo, let alone double and then triple the size of its population. Although the country was building housing at a steady clip, it wasn't even close to the amount that was needed. To handle the huge influx of refugees during the first couple years of the state, including those from the Holocaust, Israel had set up temporary camps of transitional housing. Although housing is a somewhat generous term, these camps were often rows of barracks or even just tents. By 1950, Israel began building Ma'abarot, immigrant absorption camps that were supposed to be temporary, but which persisted for more than a decade. By 1951, around 250,000 Jews were living in these Ma'abarot, just about one-sixth of Israel's population. 80% of them were Mizrahi. Conditions were generally terrible. One family lived per tent. Later, some of these tents were turned into tin huts and wooden shacks, but the misery persisted. Many of these camps lacked piped water or electricity, and dozens of people might share a single communal bathroom, hundreds a single showerhead. They absolutely roasted in the summer, choking on the dust, and froze in the winter, knee-deep in mud. Conditions were so cramped and dangerous for the spread of disease that in many instances infants were taken away from their parents and sent to special nursing facilities far away. In some tragic cases, when the infants died, the parents weren't informed for months. Israel's poverty in housing was compounded by its insecurity in food. It wasn't yet the agricultural powerhouse that it is today. The massive and rapid influx of Jewish refugees placed enormous pressure on the economy. Israel's leaders struggled to figure out how to feed everyone, even with strict rationing in place. In the early 1950s, Hadassah provided an answer. Hadassah is the Women's Zionist Organization of America that was aimed at raising funds to provide medical care in Israel. 
Its portfolio expanded into a full range of nonprofit services and projects, mostly aimed at empowering women to improve their communities throughout the country. It is one of the great Zionist organizations in history, and today is probably best known for its massive hospital complex in Jerusalem. Hadassah hit upon a novel idea. In the post-war boom, the United States found itself with massive stockpiles of food. Congress passed a law allowing the export of food to those in need around the world. Hadassah saw that bulgur, a type of cereal grain that originated in the Middle East, was oversupplied in the United States but desperately needed in Israel. Working with Senator Hubert Humphrey of Minnesota, Hadassah and Senator Humphrey got bulgur added to the export list. According to the National Library of Israel, Humphrey used the Hebrew word for bulgur in his written statement, marking the first time that Hebrew officially appeared in the United States Congressional Record. Which may not mean that much to you, but as a former congressional aide, that is the very definition of nerd cool. That it will be in order. So starting in 1951, Hadassah began shipping tens of millions of dollars of bulgur every year to Israel, this effort has been credited in part in preventing mass famine, as food was distributed to schools and hospitals and rural villages and the Ma'abarot immigrant absorption camps. Still, conditions in the Ma'abarot were terrible. Despite the government's efforts to create markets and local economies, unemployment in the camps was extraordinarily high, sometimes as much as 90%, depending on its location. Israel's incoming immigrants couldn't earn a living. Adding to the physical misery was the social segregation that the Ma'abarot both affected and symbolized. The vast majority of those who were settled by the government in the camps were the Mizrahi, the Jewish refugees from the Middle East. Although some European Jews and Holocaust survivors ended up in the Ma'abarot, it was usually temporary. And when good housing did open up, especially in the major cities, you can be sure that the Ashkenazim, the European Jews, got it first. Because the Mizrahi Jews had come from generally poor Middle Eastern and African countries, the European Ashkenazi Jews tended to look down on them as culturally backward, wayward cousins who weren't yet ready for the kind of Western civilization exemplified by Tel Aviv or Haifa or the Kibbutzim. A great deal of emphasis was put on what we might euphemistically call re-education. In 1949, Israel passed a compulsory education law, providing for free public school for all children through the 10th grade. Which was great, except that education, just like everywhere else, proved to be fertile ground for political fights between the various parties and factions in the Knesset. The Israeli left wanted secular schools, the religious right wanted religious schools, and everyone argued over how much choice parents should have. The Ma'abarot often bore the brunt of these fights, as different political factions essentially took over individual camps. You might have a camp containing Yemenite Jews being schooled in an Orthodox religious academy, called the Yeshiva, while another camp of Iraqi Jews was instead managed by a political faction of the left. Each side sought to impose its ideology on its Ma'abarot inhabitants. And this left the Mizrahi Jews resentful at the efforts to force them to give up their own cultural mores for those of a European-centric Israel. By 1952 and 1953, the height of the Ma'abarot population, the government realized that the situation was intolerable and resolved to build permanent housing for the refugees. 
Remember, Jews were still coming in from all over the Middle East and North Africa. Israel established what became known as development towns, the permanent successors to the Ma'abarot, Intended to both clear out the camps and reduce urban crowding along the coast, these small cities sprang up in the northern Galilee region, the southern Negev Desert, and the central hills around Jerusalem. Beit Shemesh, Kiryat Shmona, Arad, Dimona, Mitzpeh Ramon, these are some of the more well-known development towns that you might visit in Israel today. The towns were often built next to or even on top of the Ma'abarot, so that the immigrant camps turned into ethnic neighborhoods attached to these towns. By the middle of the 1950s, the Ma'abarot population began declining, and the last camp was torn down in the early 1960s. Here's the point. Ultimately, the Ma'abarot were kind of like America's inner-city housing projects. Even when they were torn down and replaced with better housing, they left a permanent legacy impacting certain ethnicities. Across the board, the Middle Eastern Jews who came from the Ma'abarot could expect everything from higher unemployment to greater poverty, less education, and worse health outcomes. They left a legacy of lasting social resentment, too. Though Israel simply didn't have enough housing for all the Jews coming into the country, the Mizrahi couldn't help but notice that the European Jews had a much easier time settling in the bigger cities, where they had more access to jobs and services. Relegated to development towns on Israel's periphery, the Mizrahi struggled for decades to keep up and catch up, a legacy that remains today. Still, not every Mizrahi refugee ended up in the Ma'abarot. Many tens of thousands were sent to villages that already existed, yet were strangely devoid of any residents. And that's because those villages had been Palestinian. The War of Independence, or the Nakba, the catastrophe, as the Palestinians call it, created around 720,000 Palestinian refugees. Israel made noises about allowing some of the refugees to return upon the conclusion of peace negotiations with all the Arab neighbors, and an end to Arab economic boycotts and terrorism. The Arab countries all rejected these proposals. But even before the War of Independence ended, the Israeli government had itself turned against the idea of allowing any Palestinians to come back. For one thing, in the absence of peace with the Arab states, the Palestinians remained a major security threat. Israel's ambassador to the United Nations, Abba Ibn, asked the UN whether it was reasonable to expect that Israel should add to all of its other challenges by an influx from hostile territory, he said, of people steeped in the hatred of our very statehood. Which seems like a reasonable question. Arab infiltration across the boundary lines remained a daily and deadly struggle, there was also a concern that if Israel allowed back in some refugees, they would be pressured to take everyone back, and that was a demographic, economic, and political impossibility. The Mizrahi Jews were amongst those most opposed to any plan to allow the Palestinians to come back. Partly that's because tens of thousands of them had moved into the villages abandoned by the Palestinians, whether voluntarily or by force. With such a severe housing shortage, empty Palestinian villages, with all the homes, streets, infrastructure, and buildings intact, proved a convenient and irresistible solution. Within about a month of independence in the early stages of the war, in June of 1948, Israel passed the Abandoned Areas Ordinance. It was aimed explicitly at absorbing land the army had captured. 
If a place had been deserted by its inhabitants, the law declared it was a legally abandoned area, and the government retained the right to determine how that land would be used. The law was made when around half of the Palestinians had already fled. Some claim that this and others like it were nothing more than a naked land grab, an excuse to kick the Palestinians out. Others say that the ordinances grew out of military necessity, since much of the land deemed abandoned lay along those crucial narrow borders that the Arab armies used to their advantage during the invasion of Israel. But the point is that it left these empty villages and towns all over Israel that the government used to settle the Middle Eastern Jews who were themselves refugees from Arab lands. Desperate to hold on to whatever housing they could get, of course the Mizrahi were opposed to any sort of agreement that would force them out of their new homes in favor of returning Palestinians. By 1951, every abandoned Palestinian village had been re-inhabited by mostly Mizrahi Jews, and the Israeli government passed more laws to make it all legal. Put it this way, you had situations where a Palestinian family had a deed from the British Mandate government, and a Jewish family had a deed from the Israeli government, both for the exact same house. Of course, with the demise of the British Mandate and Israel's independence as a separate nation, the old laws were superseded by the new ones. But Israel never made compensation or restitution for the Palestinians' property. They simply amputated whatever property laws might apply to the Palestinians and replaced them with property rights for the Mizrahi Jews. Israel's argument was this. Look, they said, the difference between us and the Arabs is that we found housing for our refugees, however difficult it was. Golda Meir once complained sarcastically that Israel would have been better off if it had used the Jewish refugees as propaganda, keeping them miserable and destitute to generate international sympathy like the Arabs did. The Palestinians fled or were kicked out of Israel, but nearly a million Jews were kicked out of all the Arab countries, sometimes violently. Their property confiscated, no compensation ever offered or paid from the Arab side either. Israel's foreign minister, Moshe Sharet, pointed out that no country in history had allowed the return of such a comparably large refugee population, and certainly not one that could be hostile. In any case, he argued, whatever one thought about the expulsion of the Palestinians from Jewish land and the expulsion of the Jews from Arab lands, at the end of the day it amounted to a population transfer. Israel took in the Jewish refugees and did its best to integrate them into Israeli society, the Arabs could have resettled the Palestinians in reverse, in Jewish property that had been seized. That the Arabs refused to do so wasn't Israel's problem anymore. By the middle of the 1950s, probably around a third of Israel's population lived on what had once been Arab land. Most of those were Mizrahi Jews, who continued facing tremendous challenges integrating into Israeli society. The Israeli government continued struggling to provide the necessary services and infrastructure to meet the needs of an ever-growing population. But then, for this poor, struggling country, there came a sudden opportunity for a huge windfall. <laughs> In the middle of the 1950s, an opportunity arose for Israel and hundreds of thousands of its citizens, who were Holocaust survivors. West Germany was offering a reparations agreement in which billions of dollars would be transferred to Israel and to survivors all over the world, in compensation for their victimization and losses during the Holocaust. The deal touched off a major political crisis in Israel. Some saw it as nothing more than blood money. 
The debate got so heated that it came to violence, as Jews rioted against each other in the streets of Jerusalem. As usual, the final decision came down to David Ben-Gurion in one of the most controversial debates of his premiership. Israel was beginning to grapple with the Holocaust, and it wasn't going to be easy. In fact, it would cost someone his life. You've been listening today to Zohar Argo, Francoise Atlan, and one of my favorites, the Yama Ensemble. Find the music at my website, jewanano.com. Thanks for listening. The Heathrow out. See you later. <laughs>